Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. For those who are new, we are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew here on Sunday morning. And this morning we are going to finish up a very important section, a section that runs from chapters 5 through 7, a section that is called the Sermon on the Mount. And let me just set it up one last time, especially for those who are new. All the way through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ has been contrasting true righteousness with the self-righteousness and therefore the false righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Theirs was a righteousness based on their works. Therefore, it was self-righteousness. And in Isaiah, God said that our self-righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. Now, he gives this sermon, and of course, every good preacher, and Jesus is the best, will then press at one point his audience to make a decision. Jesus Christ has just presented the true way to God. In fact, the climax is in verses 13 and 14, where this sermon reaches its evangelistic climax and conclusion as Jesus pressed his audience for a decision. In other words, I've laid out before the right way, the wrong way. The narrow gate and the broad gate. The narrow gate, of course, is Jesus. It's the gospel. The broad gate, of course, well, that was man's works, man's uh, righteousness, all the good deeds that he does, thinking that uh, he can earn his way to God, earn heaven, and so on. And so Jesus Christ is laying out the true way to God as opposed to the false way to God. and says, now you need to make a decision. Salvation is a personal decision. It's the most important decision you will ever have to make in this life because it's the only one that has eternal consequences attached to it. But as we pointed out, this choice is not always so easy, even for those who want to make the right choice, because standing in front of these two gates are false prophets who are doing everything in their power to direct people through the wrong gate and down the wrong way. As we have pointed out, they're like spiritual traffic cops, you know, standing in front of the narrow gate and waving people down the broad way that leads to destruction. Now, nobody knew this better than our Lord Jesus Christ, which is why after he admonishes people to enter through the narrow gate, he quickly adds a warning in verses 15 to 20. In fact, verses 15 to 27 are built on two very important warnings. First of all, Jesus said, beware of false prophets in verses 15 to 20. And then he said, beware of false prophets professions in verses 21 to 27. And that really brings us to our text this morning. Because Jesus has now moved from the danger of false prophets to the danger of false professions. False professions that are rooted in self-deception. In verses 21 to 23, the Lord Jesus Christ presents the principle. And then in verses 24 through 27, he gives a parable to illustrate the principle. All right, here's the principle in verses 21 to 23. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And folks, that actually is the principle, but then in verses 22 and 3, he kind of expands on it. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And we studied this last week. And basically, the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, look, make sure that you're not deceiving yourselves. 
Because many are going to stand before me in the day of judgment and be shocked that they are not going to be entering into the kingdom of heaven. They've deceived themselves. And remember who Jesus is talking to here. He's not talking to atheists or agnostics. He's talking to people who are very religious and yet very lost. I mean, how could this have happened to them? How could they wind up being so deceived? Well, as we said last time, many people are deceived because of false prophets. And a false prophet, a prophet is anybody who claims to speak on behalf of God. So teachers, pastors, TV evangelists, anybody who claims to represent God and speak on behalf of God is either a true teacher, a true pastor, a true evangelist, or someone who is not. And it's true, many people have been deceived because of false prophets. That's what Jesus dealt with in verses 15 to 20. There are many who go to hell because they sat under the teaching of false doctrine and have been deceived. But listen to me, and this gets into the heart of what Jesus now moves into. Many others go to hell who sat under the teaching of the truth from week to week, and yet never made a real commitment to Christ. These have deceived themselves into thinking that they are true Christians. What are some of the causes of self-deception? Well, let me give them to you quickly, because I think it's important. Since the Lord says, beware that you don't deceive yourselves, we ought to know what are some of the ways by which people can be self-deceived. Let me give you four things, just quickly, okay, that will cause somebody to be self-deceived. The first one is a false sense of assurance. And this is more our fault than it is theirs. What do I mean? Well, this is often due to the fact that many Christians, after they pray with somebody to receive the Lord, will then tell them something like, you know, look, never doubt from this moment on that you're really a Christian, all right? Because to do so is to doubt God's Word and give place to the devil. See, here's the reasoning. I mean, look, the Word of God says if you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're saved. You're going to heaven. And so to reinforce that, Christians will say, so now look, don't let the devil try to work doubt in there and get you doubting your salvation. Don't let the devil do that. Because when you do that, man, the devil's just going to work. He's going to hammer you. He's going to work you over. Well, they mean well. All right? I know they mean well when they say things like that. But here's the problem. We don't know what's in a person's heart. We can't be sure that they really have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and are now born again. We don't know that, all right? In fact, in Matthew chapter 13, you have to turn there, but Jesus gave the parable of the sower, right? And in that parable, he said, a, a certain man went forth sowing seed in his field. Uh, and he said, as he sowed the seed, some fell on the wayside soil, the hard soil. Some fell on shallow soil. Some seed fell on thorny soil. And some seed fell on good soil and bore fruit. Later, when the Lord interprets the parable, he said, the seed is the word. And the soils are various kinds of hearts. And of the three hearts that received the word, only one was genuinely saved. Which one? The one that bore the fruit, right? And just like in agriculture, it takes time for fruit to grow. Even so, in the spiritual realm, when a person receives Christ and the Spirit of God is now planted in their heart, gives them a new heart, well, it takes time for the fruit of the Spirit to begin to grow from their lives as well. See, only time will tell whether a person is truly born again and a child of God, right? And therefore, we have no right to assure a person of something we cannot be certain is true. Look, only the Holy Spirit can bear witness to the genuineness of a person's salvation. And if we try to do it, 
by telling them never to doubt their salvation from the moment we pray with them to receive Christ. If we try to do that, well, here's what happens. If they're not born again, the Spirit of God is going to want to keep convicting them, right? So that they eventually do receive Christ in truth. But now we've told them, don't ever doubt that. So we've circumvented or we've neutralized any future conviction of the Holy Spirit who is still working on them because the Holy Spirit knows they haven't really received Christ. And here we are, well-intentioned as it may be, we're working against the purposes of God and giving somebody a false sense of assurance. So that's the first cause of self-deception, a false sense of assurance. The second cause is a failure of self-examination. These tend to be the folks who take God's love or God's grace or both to such an extreme that they never really face honestly and listen, therefore never really take seriously the sin in their life. These people are sprinkled throughout the church. In fact, their numbers are growing, I think, due to the fact that so many churches are just not preaching the gospel. In an effort to keep things kind of warm and fuzzy and positive, they're not really dealing with the tough issues. They're not really dealing with sin anymore. They're not really dealing with coming judgment. And as a result, they're giving people a false sense of assurance which causes them not to feel they need to examine themselves. These are those who feel that as long as they believe in God, go to church once in a while, and live a good life, quote-unquote, whatever that means, and it's very subjective depending on who you talk to, all right? But as long as they do these things, then they feel God's love and grace will cover them and listen will eventually carry them into heaven someday. And because of that mindset, they never really practice any self-examination, even though we are commanded throughout the pages of the New Testament to do that very thing. And the Lord Jesus is doing it right here in Matthew 7. Of course, Peter said in First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10, he said, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. Peter is saying, look, be very diligent to make sure that you're really a Christian. All right? I mean, look, examine yourself. Look and see, is there fruit? Is there a change in your life? Is there a change in your thinking? All right? Are your values different? Is your worldview different? Uh, you know, can you look at the time before you prayed to receive Christ and you see a whole different person that lived back then? And even though you're not perfect now, but there's some major changes that have taken place. I mean, your whole outlook on life has changed. If you can't really do that, Peter is saying, you're in trouble. Make sure that you, are, you examine yourself, that you are really a child of God. Paul picked up on that in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. He said, examine yourself to make sure that you're in the faith. Test yourself, he said. Later on, he would say, judge yourself now, that you won't have to stand before Jesus someday and be judged. And go to hell is what he was saying. I have you turn to a, just a few more. Galatians 6. Turn to Galatians 6. I mean, this is a subject, guys, we could look at. There are so many passages throughout the New Testament. I'm only going to show you a few. That are hammering home this whole idea of making sure that you're not deceived because deception is rampant and so many people are deceiving themselves in their relationship with God. But Paul said in Galatians 6, starting in verse 7, he said, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption or hell. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. 
In other words, don't be deceived. God isn't mocked, Paul said. If you say you're a Christian, but all week long you're sown to the flesh. In other words, you're just you know, getting into the things of the flesh and partying and, and, and living immorally and so on and so forth. Paul says, you know what, you're, you're fooling yourself if you think you're a Christian. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap of the flesh hell. But if you're living for the Lord and you're sowing to the Spirit, well, that just is an evidence that you're a child of God and someday you're going to inherit eternal life in heaven. How about 1 Corinthians 6? And let's pick it up in verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. You think Paul and the other apostles thought that people had a tendency to be deceived on some of these issues and was trying to warn them not to be, just like the Lord Jesus is warning us not to be deceived as well? He says, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, folks, let me just say this. These are not verbs. They're nouns. This is not saying that a, that a true Christian can ever fall into one of these sins. If they do, they can't ever be, you know, forgiven and go to heaven. These, these are not the sins of action. They're the sins of nature. They're nouns. He's talking about groups of people who live their lives according to the... They're defined by these actions. They live in these actions. This is a constant way of life for them. It's not talking about believers who fall into these things once in a while and repent and, and get right with God. That's not what he's talking about. But if your life is defined by this, if this is who you are, you're a fornicator, you're a homosexual, you're a, a thief, you're covetous, this is, your, this is who you are because this is how you live every day, guess what Paul says? You're deceiving yourself if you think you're going to heaven living that kind of lifestyle. I'll give you one more. Ephesians 5. And we'll pick it up in verse 5. And we could look at other passages. You get the idea, obviously. Paul says in verse 5 of Ephesians 5, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words. Now here, we are being told to beware of people who try to deceive us. And that was verses 15 to 20, right? Of Matthew 7. False prophets, false teachers would never proliferate in the church if there wasn't a market for them. And as long as people want to hear what they want to hear, want to have their ears tickled, and they don't really want to hear the truth of God, but want to hear whatever's going to bless them, you know, tell me how I can be successful, tell me how I can be wealthy, tell me how God wants to bless me regardless of how I'm living. You're, as long as people have a mindset like that, you're always going to have a market for false teachers and false prophets. And so Paul is saying, look... Don't let anyone deceive you with those empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Hold on to that idea. Obedience, disobedience, that is the key to understanding this passage. Look, the failure of honest self-examination may lead to the very scene Jesus is trying to keep us from, which he describes in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. So the first cause of self-deception is a false sense of assurance. Secondly, a failure of self-examination. Thirdly, what we'll call a fixation on religious activities. A fixation on religious activities. There are many people who have grown up in church. Or maybe they discovered church later in life and now they attend faithfully 
and are involved extensively, right? Maybe you know people like that. They go to church and enjoy singing the songs, hearing the sermons, reading the Bible, and being involved in all of their church's functions, activities, and outreaches, which, by the way, are not necessarily bad. That's not necessarily a bad thing unless those things become a substitute for a true relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that seems to be the real issue Jesus is addressing in verses 21 to 3. Again, don't forget that the people Jesus is talking about in those verses are not the irreligious. Listen, they are the very religious who apparently have based their relationship with God on their religious activities. Only to hear Jesus say to them on the day of judgment, I never knew you. Depart from me. You know, as a Roman Catholic, growing up in the Roman Catholic Church, my wife and I, we knew people that went to Mass every single day of the week. They observed all the feast days, all the ceremonies, all the rituals of the church. They were very faithful in going to church and praying the rosary and lighting the candles, etc. But we knew, after we got saved, that you know what? All that stuff they wrapped themselves in, religious-wise, didn't save them. Well, the Jews were the same way. This, and Jesus is talking to scribes and Pharisees, very religious people. He is saying that, look, he's talking about them, I should say. He is saying, look, the scribes and Pharisees, they have wrapped themselves in the trappings of religion all their lives. But they have a, a false sense of righteousness. Religious activities, I mean, are not a bad thing per se. But if you think that the activities equal a relationship with God, then that, that is a bad thing. Because now you're not really basing a relationship on Jesus Christ. It really is based on all your involvement in the church and all the things that go along with that. And I'll give you one more, okay? The fourth cause of self-deception is what some have called the fair exchange or balancing out approach. (laughs) What is that? Well, this is the person that when they see something wrong in their life, instead of repenting and getting it right with God, in other words, turning from their disobedience and beginning to now live in obedience to what God has said, No, instead of doing that, they find something good in their life. Okay, that's going on. Okay, this is not good. I'm not doing so good here. But look, look over here. See? I mean, look at the good stuff I do over here. Certainly that good stuff is going to balance out the bad. The good will cancel out the negative. You ever know anybody like that? Come with us witnessing, okay, on the streets of Woodfield. I'll point them out to you all night long. Because most people in our society will admit I'm not perfect, but I think I'm good enough. Why? Because all the good stuff I do is going to balance out and actually tip the scales in my favor. Because the good is going to cancel out the bad. That that is a mentality we see everywhere in our society. But let me just say this. There are three errors inherent in that rationale. And I'll give them to you quickly. First of all, the Bible says that apart from Jesus Christ, we can really do nothing in the eyes of God that is truly good. Romans 3, verse 12 tells us. Number two, the second error is that in thinking that the good we do can and will cancel out the bad. You know, the Bible says that God is the righteous judge of all the earth, okay? Uh, go into a court of law with a human judge. You've gotten a t- you were stopped for speeding, okay? You got a ticket for speeding. Come into court, you know, and stand before the judge and say, Well, Your Honor, I know I was speeding. I was, you know, caught going 75 and a 25 or whatever it might be. Uh, and, but here's the thing. I'm a good father, okay? I'm a faithful husband. I pay my taxes on time every year. Certainly all the good stuff is going to cancel out this one negative thing. What is the judge going to say? You're guilty, man. Look, 
It's great you're such a wonderful guy, all right? But when you break the law, you've got to pay the penalty of breaking the law. Well, the righteous judge of all the earth is no less than a human judge, obviously. He's more. And if that won't work in a human court of law, you think you're going to get away with it in God's court? You'd be shocked on the day of judgment to see how many people use that logic, though. It's an error. And the third error in this thinking, I'll just give it to you quickly. I won't spend any time with it. The third error is in thinking that our individual sins are what send us to hell in the first place. When in fact the Bible says it's not sins plural, but the sin singular of not accepting Jesus Christ or not believing in Christ that sends us to hell. John chapter 16 verse 9, Jesus said that. You see, what sends us to hell is not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ in truth. All right, Not receiving Him as our Lord and Savior. That is the only sin that will send you to hell. Now, what about all the sins you commit in this life? Do they mean anything? Of course. They determine your degree of punishment in hell. They don't send you to hell, though. Just like our good works don't get us into heaven. All right? Christ gets us into heaven. Our faith in Jesus. But all the good things we do for Jesus, in Jesus' name, while we're Christians here on the earth, that de- determines our degree of reward in heaven. See, people think, well, you know, all these sins I do, if I do more good stuff, it cancels it out, I get to heaven. The sins don't get you to hell any more than the good works get you into heaven. It's receiving Christ or rejecting Christ. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people will say, well, but I believe in Jesus. Well, look, you know, the Bible says demons believe and tremble. There is genuine faith and then there is a false sense of faith. And really, folks... That is the real issue that Jesus Christ is dealing with in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. He is contrasting true saving faith with an empty profession of faith. Now, how can we know what kind of faith we have? Well, saving faith is demonstrated, listen, through obedience to what God has said, while the other is mere lip service without practical, consistent obedience to what God has said. Let's read verses 21 to 3 one last time. Where Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. For many will say to me in that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and in your name done many wonders? Now, let me stop there. We talked about this last week. People say, well, how can, how can these people really not be Christians? And here they're casting out demons and prophesying and doing all kinds of miraculous things in Jesus' name. How could they not be Christians? Look, Jesus didn't say they actually did these things. It says that they said, you know, haven't we done these things? You look at some of these characters on TV. I think they really believe they cast out demons every day and are, are working miracles every day. They really, talk about self-deceived, right? I mean, there are people that actually believe that they do these things on a regular basis. Do they really? I don't think so. So don't let that throw you. What do you mean? They're casting out demons and working miracles. They must be saved. No, no, no. First of all, Jesus doesn't say they actually did these things. They just said they did them. Okay? And he will declare to them, verse 23, I never knew you depart from me. You who what? Practice Lawlessness. The key phrase here is practice lawlessness. Christians, true Christians, can sin. In fact, John says, if you're a Christian, you say you never sin. You deceive yourself and the truth isn't in you. But as a Christian, what you want to do is live righteously, even though once in a while you will sin. 
as an unbeliever, you might do some good stuff here and there. But in general, unrighteousness or the practice of lawlessness, uh, living contrary to God's laws, is going to be what characterizes your life. Now, Jesus gives a parable to illustrate this principle. A parable, folks, is an earthly story that illustrates or reinforces a spiritual truth. And he starts off with the word therefore in verse 24. The word therefore ties verses 24 to 27 to verses 21 to 23. And means that Jesus is now going to illustrate what he has just gotten done teaching using something that would have been very familiar to all of them. Let's read it. Verse 24, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now look, I'm no carpenter or architect, (laughs) but even I know that when you're building a house or any structure, the foundation is the most important part of the construction. The house is only going to be as good as the foundation it's built upon. And so I want you to be aware that in this illustration that Jesus gives us here, the foundation is the real issue that Jesus is driving at. It's the key to understanding the passage, all right? First of all, Jesus describes two men. He says each of them built a house. Now, the Lord doesn't give us any indication that the two houses were fundamentally different from each other in any way. Apparently, they were very similar in their appearance and construction. Also, it appears that they both, both men built their house in the same area because the same storm and flood hit both of the houses. The only difference Jesus mentions were the foundations upon which the houses were built. The one on the rock and the other on the sand. And because of the different foundation each house was built upon, when the storm and floods came, the one house stood, and the other house fell. Now, the interpretation, I don't think, is all that difficult. Remember, Jesus gave this parable to illustrate the warning he had already given in verses 21 to 3. I believe the two men in this illustration describe two kinds of hearers of the words of Christ. And again, it's important to understand that Jesus isn't contrasting the religious with the irreligious. It's not like he's saying, well, one's a churchgoer and one's not a churchgoer. One heard the word and the other didn't hear the word. No, Uh, both of them heard the word of God. They're both churchgoers. They both heard the truth and they both built houses. The houses, I believe, represent each man's faith. Apparently, they were similar in the sense that they, when I talk about similar, I mean the houses that they built or their faith was similar in the sense that they both believed the same things. Their houses, or in other words, their faith, uh, wasn't doctrinally different. I don't think that's what Jesus Christ is driving at here. I don't think he's trying to say that they sat in different churches and heard radically different things. They heard the faithful word of God taught and the other heard something totally different. No, I think the Lord is trying to say that in a good church, you're going to have different kinds of hearers. They're all going to hear the same word preached. Now, if it's a good church, it's going to be the word of God being presented faithfully. And as it's being presented, the, the, the people who here are basing their faith on that teaching. And the faith is basically the same. 
Both of these guys heard the same things, the words of Christ. They both believed the same things. The fact that the same storm and flood hit both houses tells us that both houses were in the same location and in fact could even indicate that both went to the same church. And I think that's what the Lord's getting at. Two guys who went to the same church heard the same word taught. As I said, the only difference that appears between the two is that they built their house of their faith upon the rock and the other on the sand. And again, the foundation is really the whole point of the parable. All right, if that's, if that's the case, the foundation is really the issue, then what is the rock and what is the sand? I mean, you know, what do they represent? Well, some say the rock is God. They say that because in Psalm 18, verse 2, and in other places, God is likened to a rock. And let me read Psalm 18, verse 2. The psalmist said, The Lord is my rock, and my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So they say, well, the rock, that's got to be God. Others say, well, yes, God, but Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, all right, the God-man. I mean, Jesus is really in view. Yes, God, but Jesus uh, is in view here. Why? Uh, because it says in Matthew 16, verse 18, that Jesus is the rock upon which the church would be built. So we're talking about building our faith on a rock. That's got to be Jesus. Others say, well, wait a minute. The rock is really the word of God which is the only sure foundation for our faith to be built upon. So who's right? Well, each interpretation is biblically accurate, but is it the right interpretation for this passage? Well, let's let the passage speak for itself, all right? First of all, in verse 24, Jesus said, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, and what? And does them. I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the what? On the rock, Right? Verse 26, But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, I will liken to a man, who, a foolish man, who built his house on the sand. Look, certainly true faith must be built upon Jesus Christ and the word of God if it's going to be genuine. That's a given. But that in itself doesn't go far enough to drive home the point that Jesus is making here. I don't believe. It's not just hearing the word of God or even believing the word of God. But listen obedience to the word of God that demonstrates whether or not you built your house or your faith on the rock or on the sand. Now, not to confuse you, let's recap quickly. The two men illustrate two kinds of hearers of the word of God. The houses represent two kinds of faith. One genuine, the other phony. What made the difference was not the basic content of the facts or information that each person possessed. They both went to the same church. They both heard the same message and so on. The difference between the two men was in how each responded to the word of God when it was taught. One heard and obeyed. Therefore, Jesus said he built his faith on the rock. The other man heard and did not obey. Therefore, Jesus said his faith was built on sand. Look, there are lots of people across this country who go to good churches. Now listen, there's a lot of bad churches out there. We know that. I'm not talking about them. Right now I'm talking about good churches who faithfully teach God's Word. There's a lot of people who go to good churches across this country and hear the Word of God being faithfully taught week after week. They believe everything they hear. They really do. It's just that they leave and don't do anything about it. All right? It never works its way into their practical daily lives. They sit here and I see them. 
Okay? They nod. Uh, when I, you know, not to put, if you've nodded this morning, I'm not talking about you. Uh, so I appreciate the nods. I appreciate the affirmation. I, I don't like when people are folding their arms and they're shaking. I mean, you know, that, that you know, can throw you a little bit. No, I appreciate the nods. I appreciate, you know, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree with that. And they come to church. They hear the Word of God taught. They nod in agreement. But when they go out those doors, they really have no desire to really, I mean really, apply it into their lives. And yet because they go to church and hear the Word of God being proclaimed, they have deceived themselves into thinking that they really know God. They're really children of God. And someday when they die, they are going to be going to heaven. But listen, Jesus is warning that the day of judgment is coming. That is what the winds, the rain, and the floods represent. On judgment day, each person's faith will be evaluated as to whether it was real or phony. And listen, the criteria that God is going to use to determine the genuineness of each person's faith will not be, listen, will not be their denominational affiliation or whatever church they belong to, okay? I mean, you can't say, well, Lord, I went to Calvary Chapel. You know, Calvary Chapel. Yeah, we were your guys, all right? I mean, it's not going to matter what the church you went to, you know, the denominational name or your particular church's name or whatever. Uh, it's not going to matter the religious activities that they were involved in. In other words, how often they went to church, the ex- spiritual experiences that they had. Some people are basing their whole relationship with God on certain spiritual experiences that they've had. And depending on the, the group, they get pretty bizarre, don't they? There's some weird experiences going on out there. At least people are claiming to have them. I mean, I've talked to some people who, you know, they, they go to churches and, and, and they believe that, you know, gold dust is being sprinkled on, upon them and they see the gold dust on each other and, and, and see, this is, we're the true church because, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're, I guess we're the gold members. I mean, you know, God just sprinkles the gold dust, you know. And, and there's other things I've been hearing, you know, I'm thinking... You know, and in their minds, because they've had this experience, spiritually speaking, that that means that they really know God. In fact, they're kind of like the the elite. Who's having these experiences but us? We are the elite, right? And I hope not, but I'm wondering how many of these folks are going to hear Jesus say to them someday, I never knew you. Look, it's not the experience that you've had. It's not the ceremonies and rituals you've kept. It's not even how much of the Bible you've learned, although that's good. None of that is going to get you a place in heaven. The criteria that God is going to use will be whether or not a professing Christian, now, a professing Christian, consistently obeyed what God had said because, listen, obedience is the truest test of saving faith. And that just seems to be the bottom line thing here. I had a gentleman come up to me after, you know, it's amazing how the Lord works. I have no idea what I'm going to be teaching on from week to... I mean, I know the passage. I have no idea what I'm going to say. I just pray about it and study. And the Lord begins to hammer it out. And eventually, you know, a sermon emerges, you know. And and I don't know what I'm going to say from week to week. And I don't even know who's going to be here. I never tailor a message to anybody, uh, ever. And this gentleman was here for the very first time. Never saw him before. He's in town for a training thing. Probably won't ever see him again. And afterwards, he comes up to me and says, thank you. He says, I'm, I'm that guy. He says, I've always, you know, been kind of playing games with God. 
I've always thought, well, as long as I'm living a good life, I'm okay with God. He says, and you've really helped me to see that that really isn't true. I said, well, God did that. Because I didn't know you were coming. I didn't know what you needed to hear. But the Holy Spirit does. And the Lord Jesus Christ is wanting all of us to know there are a lot of people across this country and the world who because they were born into a church, baptized, confirmed, because they go through their their church's uh, ceremonies and rituals, because they attend church faithfully, because they, you know, I mean, because they're involved in all these things, they have a relationship with God. And Jesus is saying, you know what? That doesn't mean anything in God's eyes. The only thing that God looks at is the heart to see if you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now, He knows, but He wants us to examine ourselves. Well, how do we do that? I mean, God knows where our hearts are at. He, mean, he doesn't have to, to test us. or He knows exactly what's in our heart. But see, He wants us to know because if our hearts are not right, we have to have time to change before it's too late, right? And therefore, He says, look, here are the, the signs that you look for. And what is the biggest one? Are you obeying what I have said? No, you're not going to do it perfectly. No, I'm not asking you to be perfect. You can't be this side of glory. But are you serious? Are you really wanting to live for me? Are you playing some Jesus game? Because I know the heart and I know if you're fooling yourself. I'm not deceived, but you're deceiving yourself. You know, John Bunyan, as we bring this to a close, John Bunyan, who wrote, of course, Pilgrim's Progress, noted in that story that there was a door that leads to hell even from the gates of heaven. That's very astute. Alright? Because what Bunyan was trying to point out is there's a lot of religious people who live... They're not, they're not the, the overt sinners. They're not the ones in the bars and bikers and all these... They are the churchgoers who maybe have grown up in the church. And think that they're on their way to heaven only to hear Jesus say, I never knew you. So even from the, from, there's an entrance to hell even from the gates of heaven. Can you imagine the horror of that day if you're one of those people? Do you realize the tremendous service Jesus Christ is doing for us here? Do you, do you, have you stopped and think about how precious this portion of Scripture really is? Because what the Lord is doing is He's given us a, a glimpse of judgment day right now giving us a glimpse of Judgment Day, showing us how many on that day are going to stand before Him who have deceived themselves into thinking that they were right with Him when in fact He didn't even know them. Now, of course, He's God. He knew who they were. He didn't know them intimately. He had no relationship with them. They had deceived themselves with empty professions of faith that was not rooted in obedience. And he does this so that we can make the necessary changes now before it's too late. What a blessing. What a blessing that we have time to examine ourselves. Jesus Christ didn't give us this portion of Scripture, and I certainly didn't teach it to condemn you. But just to shake you up a little bit. Get you out of the comfort zone. Hey, ask yourself, good heavens, I want to see all you guys go to heaven. But if you wind up going to hell, is that going to hurt me? Is it going to hurt God? Well, yeah, it'll grieve his heart. And sure, I'll be sad to see you go to hell. But it's going to hurt you the most. That's why it's so important that we listen to the words of Jesus Christ 
and we really honestly take a good hard look at ourselves, where we are with God, are we playing games, are we giving them lip service and walking out that door of the church and we're fornicating, we're going stealing, we're doing things that we know are wrong, but good heavens, I'm not as bad as that guy, so it balances out and yeah, I'm good. No. It's not that way. We need to make the changes now before it's too late. Look, I'll end with this. I think the words engraved on the wall of a cathedral in Lubbock, Germany, I think these words sum up exactly what Jesus Christ will say to those on the day of judgment who were hearers of his word but not doers of his word. Here's what the inscription says, and I quote, Thus speaketh Christ our Lord to you. You call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me the way and walk me not. You call me life and live me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. And then verse 28, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Yeah, because the scribes would teach this way. Well, Rabbi so-and-so said this. Uh, On this topic, Rabbi Hillel said this. And here Jesus was saying, You have heard it said, but I say to you. That's authority. And power. Because the same one who spoke the universe into existence and holds it all together by the word of his power, he was the one teaching here in this passage. And I'll tell you what, there is power in God's word, isn't there? The church doesn't need the latest pop psychology or the latest wisdom of man. The church needs the unadulterated, faithful teaching of God's word. God said to the people of Israel, back in Jeremiah's day that were being fed by all the false prophets back then and the, and the priests who were all corrupt. He said, there's coming a day when I'm going to give you shepherds after my own heart who are going to feed you with knowledge and understanding. Jesus said to Peter, when he asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? And after Peter assured the Lord he did, two out of the three times he said what? Feed my sheep. The Word of God is living and powerful, guys. The Word of God can deliver you from whatever has you bound. The Word of God can heal your marriage. It can, it can heal your family. It can take your life, and maybe your life has been broken and been discarded by uh, the people you love because you know, you've been such a mess for so long that even the people that in your family have kind of tossed you out. I'll tell you what, the Word of God is living and powerful. And if you receive Jesus and you begin to feed on His Word, the Spirit of God will energize that truth and it will begin to bring forth from you new life, new fruit. It will begin to make changes that you couldn't possibly make on your own. We need those that will proclaim God's Word in the power of the Spirit with authority. Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word. We thank You for Your Son, who is the Word. And Lord, we ask that you would, Father, fall upon this church in a very powerful way. 
that, Lord, you would open the eyes of those who think they have a relationship with you, but really don't. That, Lord, you would not give them a moment's rest until they make peace with you, bow the knee to you, surrender control of their life to you, and begin to live what they claim to believe in their daily lives. Father, we thank you that you are giving us a chance to make the necessary changes now before it's too late. You are such a good and gracious God. We just praise you, Lord. And Father, for those of us who truly want to live for you each day, give us the grace to be a light. Give us grace, Lord, to walk in the Spirit that we not fulfill the lusts of our flesh. Give us grace, Lord, to keep our minds focused on things above to feed ourselves faithfully on the Word of God. And we just thank you, Lord. In these last days, we want to be a light. There's so much darkness out there, Lord. Give us grace to just be lights. We thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.